Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. Without further ado, Mandisa, would you do the honors of introducing our fantastic guests? Absolutely. And as I said before, I am. Uh, it is an honor to be co-facilitating this particular session uh, where I get to introduce one of my favorite people in the secular movement, uh, Miss uh, Sakivu Hutchinson, or as I say, she doesn't like for me to say this, Dr. Sakivu Hutchinson, uh, who is a writer, educator, director, and very fierce activist. Her books include Humanist in the Hood, Unapologetically Black, Feminist, and Heretical, which was released in 2020, and the novel White Knight's Black Paradise, which was released in 2015, and now the new, and released this year, the new new novel, Rock and Roll Heretic, The Life and Times of Rory Tharp. She is the founder and the director of the Women's Leadership Project and Black Skeptics Los Angeles and a co-facilitator of the Black LGBTQI plus parenting and caregiver group. Sakivu was also one of the five fierce humanists that was featured on the cover of the July-August issue, a 2018 issue of the Humanist Magazine, and she is also a co-producer of the Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference along with myself, and recently she was the co-recipient of the 2020 Harvard Humanist of the Year Award along with myself and Ijoma Oluwo. Ladies and gentlemen, please, it is my it is my honor to welcome uh, Saki, Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson. <laughs> okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much, Mandisa, for that wonderful introduction. And I'm going to share the love as well. Um, I'm really honored and very appreciative that um, you're giving the intro and that you're doing the facilitation, the co-facilitation. So let's jump right into it because I know we have limited time. Uh, first off, I want to acknowledge the anniversary of George Floyd's murder and to amplify that this is an inflection point and a landmark in global racial justice awakening. And it coincides with Mental Health Awareness Month, which I think is very germane when we're talking about the institutionalization and normalization of religious trauma. And I really want to highlight the special significance that mental health and wellness have for Black women and girls, particularly coming out of a pandemic that has disproportionately impacted African-American communities. Many of us know that COVID has made the racial mental health fault lines more visible, particularly as Black folks have grappled with skyrocketing rates of trauma, depression, anxiety, and stress due to white supremacist state violence, job losses, health and educational disparities, and disproportionate rates of sexual and domestic abuse. And Black women and girls have some of the highest rates of domestic violence victimization and sexual violence victimization in the country, yet they are least likely to receive therapy, counseling, 
and intervention. And I wanna underscore that this was born out last year when my youth from the Women's Leadership Project, which is a black feminist mentoring and civic engagement advocacy program based here in South LA, did a survey with over 150 black and Latinx young people, primarily female identified. And these youth who are high school age basically broke down that they as survivors of sexual violence, sexual harassment and domestic and intimate partner violence were not receiving therapy. They weren't receiving counseling, they weren't receiving intervention. And so why is this? First, toxic myths about black female sexuality, myths that emerge from long insidious histories of black women being constructed as unrapeable, hypersexual Jezebels emanating from the legacy of slavery. Second, over-reliance on faith-based interventions, Black women being told to pray as an antidote to trauma, stress, and depression. And certainly this is borne out by numerous studies that have indicated that Black women view faith as an absolute bedrock, a bedrock that in many instances uh, supersedes their allegiance or fealty to family and to professional ties and to social networks. A third reason is cultural stigmas on Black women seeking help. A fourth reason is cultural pressure on Black women to be self-sacrificing, strong superwomen. A fifth reason is fear of exposing their family's dirty laundry about violence and abuse. And a sixth is misogynist victim blaming and shaming when Black women experience violence or abuse. And a seventh reason is internalized misogynoir or anti-Black misogyny, which is informed by shame and being in the habit of devaluing their own experiences. So apropos of that, I want to read a quote from Audre Lorde, a Black lesbian visionary and activist and poet from her landmark work, Sister Outsider. And she says, in this country, Black women traditionally have had compassion for everybody else except ourselves. We have cared for whites because we had to for pay or survival. We have cared for our children and our fathers and our brothers and our lovers. History and popular culture, as well as our personal lives, are full of tales of Black women who had, quote, compassion for misguided Black men, end quote. Our scarred, broken, battered, and dead daughters and sisters are a mute testament to that reality. We need to learn to have care and compassion for ourselves also. In the light of what Black women often willingly sacrifice for our children and our men, this is a much needed exhortation. No matter what illegitimate use the white media makes of it, this call for self-value and self-love is quite different from narcissism. Narcissism comes not out of self-love, but out of self-hatred. All of these dynamics inform the story that I wanted to tell and have been really wanting to tell for a long time with my novel, Rock and Roll Heretic. And the novel at core is about the dynamism of Black feminist imagination. It's about cracking open this white male trope of the road novel. And if you Google the term road novel genre, the usual suspects pop up. We have Jack Kerouac, the author of the 1950s tome On the Road, Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the Electric Acid Kool-Aid Test, 
You have John Steinbeck, of course, the author of the canonical Grapes of Wrath, and Cormac McCarthy, the author of The Crossing and The Road. And so Rock and Roll Heretic is designed to disrupt, to creatively disrupt this regime of representation. It is a shout out to heretical Black women ancestors who refused to, as Lord once said, be crunched into someone else's fantasies and eaten alive. And when I invoke heretical, I'm not just speaking in terms of disrupting religious orthodoxies or faith orthodoxies. I'm also talking about crossing and disrespecting social boundaries of gender, boundaries of racial authenticity, boundaries of ability, boundaries of sexuality and sexual identity. Alice Walker addresses this dynamic in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, as she frames Black women's creativity as a constant process of reinvention, one that involves reclaiming the lives of, quote, grandmothers and mothers of ours who were not saints. And this is an important articulation and distinction because Alice Walker is a humanist. They were not saints, but artists driven to a numb and bleeding madness by the springs of creativity in them for which there was no release. And so acknowledging and calling out and coming to terms with the legacies of abuse that these women often suffered in silence is central to this journey. But first, let's go back a few decades in time uh, to a Catholic school from Central Casting in Playa del Rey, California. And I'm in the ninth grade. And my room is a shrine to the doors and the Beatles, albums, books, buttons, T-shirts. And my best friend and I would haunt record stores, conventions, and Beatle Fest, hunting for the most obscure memorabilia we could find. And I always loved electric guitar, particularly the sound and the texture of electric distortion as shred, and that's an electric guitar term, by the Beatles, Hendrix, Zeppelin, Neil Young, and Sonic Youth. And then as now, rock was largely dismissed by Black folks as white boy shit. Black kids who were into it caught hell for being Oreos. We were sellouts. We were nerds. We were weird. We were outliers, etc. And certainly corporate white supremacy in rock reinforced this dichotomy. And so growing up, I never really knew that one of the early pioneers of distortion was, in fact, a Black queer female guitar player out of Arkansas, Cotton Plant, Arkansas, all places, named Rosetta Tharp, a.k.a. Sister Rosetta. Is that slide up, Eric? Here we go. So Sister Rosetta, a.k.a. the badass that launched a thousand imitators from Johnny Cash to Elvis to Jerry Lee Lewis long before Jimi Hendrix was even born long before canonical rock gods like Eric Clapton and Jeff Beth and Jimmy Page were even a gleam in their parents' eyes, she was shredding electric. And so back at Catholic school, I have a conversation with a white male teacher who I've seen playing guitar at a few functions. And at that time, I played the flute, which is a more appropriately female instrument. But I also wrote songs with my friend and wanted to start a band. And so when I approached this teacher and asked for advice about how to get started playing guitar, he condescendingly recommended that I try the bass instead because it was, quote, easier. 
And this left an indelible impression on me because at 13, I was already intimidated by the guitar from really not seeing black women, or for that matter, virtually any women guitar players other than folkies like Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez. And of course, these women were primarily acoustic guitar players. After that, I dabbled in composing. My friends and I dabbled in starting a band, and I finally by a bass a few years later in my late teens in college, I take lessons, and I quit after being sexually harassed by my instructor, who was a professional musician in the community. And so in part, due to my personal experiences, research, and passion for the rock genre, I wanted to explore how histories of sexual violence, religious indoctrination, and resistance inform the trajectories of Black women musicians. Raised in the Southern Black blues tradition of visionary guitar artistry, Rory, the novel's protagonist, who's loosely modeled on Bark, is a former child prodigy battling depression, addiction, and music industry marginalization. She's an older traveling musician. She has no recording contract. She fronts an all-male band whose dependency is an albatross as she fights to win back her publishing rights and regain her footing in the corporate rock regime of the late 70s. Her relationship with her organist manager mother is foundational to both her creative struggle and her inner demons as a survivor of sexual abuse in the Black church and later on in life, an infidel who rejects the Pentecostal tradition she was raised in. And so traveling from a middling dive gig in Boise, Idaho, to Nashville, she becomes entangled with the rock industry juggernaut of a Janis Joplin-type figure named Jude Justice. And Justice slash Joplin, of course, signified the long tradition, the pernicious tradition of white minstrelsy and theft that has historically informed the commodification of African-American cultural production in general and rock music in particular. Decades after her death at 27 from a drug overdose in 1970, Joplin's legacy still looms Godzilla large over women's history in rock music. And Joplin was really the first white woman musical colonist to ride her ear-bleeding, angsty rip-offs of black blues standards to big buck stardom and notoriety. She's been, as many of you know, uh, particularly those who are in the baby boomer generation, that she's been the subject of umpteen posthumous biopics, documentaries, books. In fact, a new biography just dropped in October. Musicals and gushing odes to her own peculiar brand of parasitic white woman alchemy. But while her cottage industry rolls on, it's been only recently that the queer and gender nonconforming Black women rock and blues pioneers Joplin stole from musicians like Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, Big Mama Thornton, and Tharp have really received mainstream recognition for their trailblazing impact on American music. And this distinction between parasitic wild white femininity and the Black female racial other plays a key role in why faith and organized religion have remained so central to shaping Black femininity. Throughout my book, Justice plays the transgressive Miss Anne and an analog to a Miss Anne for non-Black folks as a Karen, who uses her whiteness to capitalize off of the contrast between the hypersexual Jezebel stereotype of Black femininity and white feminine innocence. Rejecting the heavy proselytizing of gospel music for the secular heresies of rock music, once considered to be satanic, Rory is not only ostracized by white corporate rock, but by African-American audiences who consider rock to be a white genre 
And this belief that rock is the province of white folks is a byproduct of the wholly artificial separation that was made between R&B and rock music during the late 1950s. And I want to include this next slide. I always think that this is so perversely hilarious that when one Googles rock music, this is what comes up. And so rock becomes associated in the late 1950s with white electric guitarists who mine the styles and songs of blues rock rock pioneers like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fast Domino, and Muddy Waters, and the list goes on, Richard Johnson and Sun House, et cetera, for young white consumers. While R&B, an offshoot of what used to be known as, quote, race records, derogatorily, were associated with urban, again, heavy quotation marks, African-American music during the late Great Migration period. It's important to note the markers of rock versus R&B. And I think a prior slide alluded to those distinctions, or at least the foundational distinctions of rock, meaning heavily electrified, based on 4-4 time, oriented towards a heavy backbeat, and, and really structured very tightly in terms of the trio of bass, drums, and again, guitar, electrified guitar. While R&B, has a more heavy bass, uh, melisma vocals or vocal runs, which means changing notes over one syllable, less electric guitar influenced, greater ensemble variety, sax, piano, jazz stylings and shadings, again, more eclecticism. And many, and, and this is, um, again, fully artificial um, in terms of the distinction between the two. I mean, this is the way that it shaked out with the 1950s segregation of the two genres. In many regards, rock music defied both black and white respectability. And part of the reason rock or white R&B was so arresting for white America was because it subverted bourgeois conventions of morality and social conduct based on Western mind-body binaries, which denigrated the body, denigrated sexuality, and denigrated sexual expression as being of a lower, more primitive order associated with the racial other. And this is why Elvis Presley's gyrating hips and wild propulsive guitar, i.e. theft of black musical idioms, elicited a firestorm in the 50s because only Negro primitives did these things, quote unquote, in seedy Jim Crow juke joints. It's certainly in the perspective of straight-laced white middle America. Respectability refers to adherence to social norms that prescribe bourgeois conventions or middle-class conventions of speech, dress, self-presentation, and morality, and religion being a primary vehicle for social and cultural enforcement of respectability. And for Black women, respectability politics demand conformity to feminine, re-Eurocentric standards of purity, piety, and submission based on deference to heterosexual male authority. This is especially insidious for Black women sexual violence survivors, and it's especially insidious for Rory's trajectory in the novel, defying heteronormativity in her performance as well as in her personal life. She's a survivor of sexual abuse in the Black church, and certainly in real life, if we look at the careers of towering musicians like Aretha Franklin and Tina Turner, their lives were also deeply informed by their resilience in the face of heteronormative intimate partner violence, sexual violence, 
and the Black community's silence. For example, in her 2018 piece, Aretha Franklin's Sexual Violence in the Culture of Dissemblance, which means hiding or concealment, Rachel Zellers argues that the long tradition of protecting Black men first and foremost, while prioritizing racialized violence against Black men, has often undermined Black women's push for accountability on sexual violence. As Zellers notes, quote, the seemingly intractable custom of silence has long been curated and reinforced in Black communities, Black organizing and Black intellectual work. Against a backdrop of enduring stereotypes about Black womanhood and a reactive protectionism extended primarily to Black men, this culture of dissemblance has helped minimize Black women's and girls' experiences of sexual violence. It has at times encouraged a short-sighted historical narrative of plantation violence, emasculation, lynching, and mass incarceration while centering the experiences of Black men. And it's important to note that Black women, of course, have experienced and continue to experience lynching as well as mass incarceration. But she is making a distinction in saying that that has often eclipsed the intra-racial experiences of sexual terrorism that Black women have been victimized by. And so continuing, she notes, pragmatically, it has fostered a decorum of intra-community censorship that pits Black women who remain silent powerfully against those who detail their own stories and name names. And certainly, faith-based traditions and the Black church have been a firmament of this co-signing of complicity and silence and normalization of sexual violence and sexual terrorism. The recent Aretha Franklin biopic, Genius, implies that women who did name names, such as Franklin's mother, Barbara Siggers, and this Genius biopic uh, just dropped a few months ago. It was written by the African-American playwright, Susan Lloyd Parks, highly recommended. Um, it's, it highlights how Franklin's mother, Barbara Siggers, she was a talented singer and a piano player in her own right, who died tragically at the young age of 34, was invisibilized for refusing to comply to domestic and intimate partner violence and sexual violence and rape specifically that happened within her family. Um, and she was invisibilized and erased for it. At Rock and Roll Heretic, women who name names are also penalized and victim shamed by the community, while those who remain complicit are alternatively rewarded and betrayed by the very Christian religious power structures they co-sign. Fellow Black women who co-sign, downplay, or deny sexual violence are key to the raw exploration of Black women's stifle creativity and ambivalent solidarity that I wanted to depict in the novel. And this troubles the highly westernized male-centric narrative of the singular genius. In the novel, I examine how this plays out within the context of Rory's relationship with her childhood nemesis, a Black woman pastor named Divinity Mason Mulvaney, and a budding televangelist who runs a call center. I was especially interested in the complex role Black female complicity plays in normalizing religious trauma. And certainly we know that religion translates into centuries of history, centuries of community, centuries of customs, practices, family, and kin ties 
that are both stifling and invigorating for Black women. And it's precisely because of the well-documented stressors that they experience that women of color in general and Black women in particular rely heavily on religious and faith-based antidotes to trauma. Faced with unstable conditions and toxic stereotypes, as well as the aforementioned burden of caring for everyone and being self-sacrificing superwomen, many Black women look to prayer and personal relationships with Jesus for consolation because prayer can provide the illusion of control and self-determination in an unpredictable, uncontrollable world where Black women may feel that they are being pulled from all sides. Conversely, a Black feminist humanist ethics has no such ambiguity about trusting God unconditionally. It accepts that humans are the starting point for morality, ethics, and justice. Further, it explicitly pushes back on the biblical caveat that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, and we would prefer to be away from the body and with the Lord. And this view, misguided, of the eternal and the non-material as the ultimate goal of human life is anathema to Black feminist humanism, which is focused on the primacy of Black self-determination, bodily autonomy, be that from gods, be it from men, be it from the state, be it from the church, be it from the family. The material world, the stone cold here and now, and most importantly, intersubjectivity are cornerstones of Black feminist humanism. And the slide that is up right now is a snapshot of some of the resourcing that we provide through Women's Leadership Project, which is not only Black feminist, but it's humanist. Uh, the slide on the left, or my left, uh, with the young women with the Standing for Black Girls sign is a representation of a new wellness initiative that we have implemented to serve young women of color, specifically African descent, survivors of sexual violence and intimate partner violence and sex trafficking in the South LA community who are not able to gain access to culturally competent, trauma-informed and humanist care, wellness and therapy and counseling from Black women counselors that subscribe to cultural competency, cultural relevance, and humanistic practices. And so intersubjectivity, as I mentioned before, is a linchpin for Black feminist humanists. It means that we are all responsible for and accountable to an ethics of culturally competent care that fosters equitable distribution of wealth, food, shelter, education, and health care based upon past and present racial, gender, class, and sexuality disparities. And ultimately, this is a heretical view because it flies in the face of American capitalist notions of nationhood. It flies in the face of hoary notions of bootstraps, individualism, and free enterprise that continue to undermine the self-determination of communities of color in general and Black folk in particular. In a once outlawed genre, that was viewed as a threat to white middle America, rock is often caricatured as a staid commercial enterprise, but its appeal for new generations of black women boundary crossers and road dogs remain. And so I'm going to read a brief excerpt from Rock and Roll Heretic, and then we can take some questions. This is from the very beginning of the novel, and it is Rory and her mother, Katie, 
in a club in Harlem during the end of the World War II period. Starting out, the C chord is the Mississippi River and its tributaries all rolled up into one. A rough ride, but sweet if you do it just right, catch it at a decent hour without the bend of rush hour traffic. This is what the fret that sharecroppers told her she could do real good as a four-year-old, finding her way around the guitar neck in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Good as Looney Tunes dynamite crackling under Wiley Coyote's butt. Good as ice down your back on a 105-degree summer afternoon. Good as a balcony church pew battling the sleep of the dead during a boring-as-shit sermon. But first, 1945. Women dragged together in mopey two steps at the Savoy, zeroing in on the men gathering on the sidelines to watch, swirling vodka in their shot glasses, fingers stiff from the New York cold. Rory hopped around on stage, trying to keep warm, ice blasts blowing through the door as soldiers dribbled in, tired eyes popping from the smoke in the dark. There were three women for every male. The soldiers reveled in the attention, young chests swimming with fresh stripes. We made it out alive from Europe's carnage. Double, triple dare you, America the Beautiful, to try and beat us down. The Savoy was the only club Rory and the band were booked at that week. Pale-male days on two hours sleep and snatched rehearsal time as riots rocked upper Manhattan after a Negro man had been shot by the police. Her first time being in Harlem at the top of the bill, and what the fuck did they have to go and riot for, Rory thought. The tenement walk-up her sometime agent Columbus had arranged for her to stay in was on a block that had been shut down by the police. Now she would have to kill time flopping on the city bus. It was during these moments that her mother liked to visit her, staggering in on the Sherman Tank church heels she refitted with plywood soles, a wraith imitating a good, God-fearing woman when nobody was watching. Prophetess Katie, they'd called her, or so she made them call her because I'm just as much an oracle as any goddamn bootleg divinity school Negro, Katie proclaimed on her fifth shot of Dak Daniels, smacking her lips at the sorry spectacle of Rory shoehorned in the back seat of the bus, nursing the blisters on her fingers. And this is a snapshot of the upcoming, or actually it's our old Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference. Our first poster from 2019, as well as uh, the magazine that uh, Mandisa alluded to. So just encouraging folks to attend the upcoming conference, which is in September, and you'll hear more about. Okay, thanks. Sakivu, thank you so much for that. I uh, (laughs) just learned so much. I really, really appreciate it. We do have a few questions. Um, Mandisa, would you like to take the first? Yes. And, um, excuse me. The first question is something that I think Sakibu actually covered quite a bit in this presentation. And it's one that we often get, (laughs) but, um, Sakibu, if you could, uh, at least just maybe elaborate or, or talk, discuss briefly about why, why the black community in the United States in particular has become so intertwined with Christianity, especially given the oppressive nature? Yeah, well, I think the short answer is that it's been part of our social history and certainly our cultural trajectory and identities. 
And we can go back to the era of enslavement and, and look at the deep indoctrination of African descent peoples vis-a-vis -vis subjugating Black folks and making Christian dogma mandatory in terms of humanizing African bodies and justifying, um, paradoxically, the enslavement and the degradation and terrorism imposed upon African bodies. But I think if, if we fast forward into the 21st century, that Christianity and specifically the Black church and faith-based institutions remain relevant, and that's in heavy quotation marks, to African-American communities precisely because of the depth of capitalism, uh, socioeconomic exploitation, and depression in African-American communities, I mean, economic depression in African-American communities. And the fact that we do not have, in many regards, culturally relevant humanist spaces that can provide an antidote to many of the social welfare resources and the spaces of solidarity and civic and political engagement that Black churches provide. So I always like to invoke the example of the Baptist church that's around the corner from me. Uh, this is a Baptist church that provides healthcare services. It provides food. Um, it has a soup kitchen. It has a gym. It has a number of, of different tentacles in the community when it comes to servicing those bedrock needs that African-American folks are not getting within a capitalist neoliberal economy where we have staggeringly high unemployment rates, we are unhoused in disproportionate numbers, we are being displaced due to hypersegregation and gentrification and um, predatory lending and subprime lending practices. And so in many regards, churches are filling the gap that the state is not filling. And we certainly saw this uh, with this latest round of providing small business loans to African-American and Latinx community-based businesses. I mean, how African-American business, business were being systematically discriminated against in, in that distribution process, you know, by the big banks, by Bank of America, by Wells Fargo. And so this is part of this systemic um, dispossession of wealth that occurs in African-American communities, generational wealth being siphoned away by these twin forces of capitalism, white supremacy, and hypersegregation. Thank it. you very much you. for that. Do you think there's a new space for Black women opening up? Uh, for performing rock and, and other subcultures. You know, we know we have like Dio Soul and we look, we think Afropunk and such like that, but yes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uh, we have a thriving Afropunk movement. You have the Black Rock Coalition. You have uh, Black women, globally renowned rockers like Melina Moy, um, who is out of L.A., Jackie Vinson, who is out of Houston, uh, Gabby Logan, who is out of Texas. These are women that I've worked with recently in trying to raise basically the relevance, the, the cultural and political relevance of rock to contemporary Gen Z and millennial audiences who are unaware of the deep, rich history that African-American rockers have forged vis-a-vis -vis trying to disrupt 
all of uh, the paradigms that I was addressing in the talk in terms of corporate toxicity in rock sexual violence and sexual abuse that's occurred you know, towards African-American women, the eclipse of African-American women when it comes to publishing rights, um, rights to their masters, um, rights to you know, equitable terms when they're trying to forge contracts with labels. And we know that the labels are increasingly, and I just saw this um, from one of the artists on Twitter, are becoming irrelevant in terms of distribution. You know, that Black women are relying increasingly on alternative networks, on social media, on streaming platforms to disseminate their music. So absolutely, there are, are vibrant underground, subcultural, and other networks and cohorts that Black women rockers are tapping into to gain visibility and self-determination. Uh, someone asked... Uh... Is there anyone in our spaces working on Black Muslim indoctrination? That's a great question. Um, I'm not really sure about Black Muslim indoctrination specifically. Now, I know that there is the ex-Muslim organization that is global, that is overarching in terms of Muslim indoctrination. But... As far as Black Muslim, um, in terms of the Nation of Islam, I'm, I'm assuming that that's what the person is specifying. Not really sure. I don't know, Mandisa, if you know. Um, we certainly, uh, within Black nonbelievers, uh, most of, uh, of, quite a few of our members have left the Christian faith, but we also have members who have left the Muslim faith, particularly the Nation of Islam. Uh, that is certainly uh, an area that tends to be overlooked even in the ex-Muslim world. Um, people who are, you know, who, who lead the Nation of Islam and also uh, Muslims from African descent. Uh, there's often more attention focused on you know, Muslims from, or ex-Muslims from Arab descent. So there is even that trajectory of, you know, of, of racism even and, and also that erasure even in that. So we, we have to, we have to deal with, we, 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 we do, um, you know, we, we do, uh, but yes, we do have some former Muslims within black non-believers. So our work intersects and, um, you know, the, the Nation of Islam, for those of you who weren't familiar, it was very popular in the 1950s and 60s. It was made popular by uh, Malcolm X, uh, formed by Elijah Muhammad in the United States. There was certainly a lot of misogyny and uh, very, very patriarchal. Um, and and uh, so, yes, uh, even though there are, there are still a large uh, Nation of Islam uh, population here and Muslim population, uh, most we do have some members who have left the Islamic faith. We have uh, another question, um, and it's uh, musical related. Um, what are your thoughts on Bruno Mars in terms of cultural appropriation? Yeah, I'm going to have to confess to some Gen X ignorance that I have a very passing knowledge of Bruno Mars, and, and it's funny because uh, my seventh grader, who's 13 abhors Bruno Mars. So it may be due to the cultural appropriation dynamic. Um, not really sure. That's my suspicion. So I would have to defer to someone who has much more Gen Z millennial knowledge um, about that contemporary genre. 
Okay, we have another question here. Um, uh, someone, Amy, who says, I've heard many white rockers say that their biggest influences were black blues and rock artists. I hear in your speech some need for more acknowledgement. If so, how can that be accomplished? So I would like to direct folks not only to my book, which is available on multiple platforms, as you saw, but also to um, a really excellent new book called Black Diamond Queens, and it's by Maureen Mann, M-A-H-O-N, and you can check her work out on on Amazon and all the usual suspects. But she's an African-American rock historian, critic, and womanist feminist analyst. And she, like I said, has has done uh, this really powerful reclamation of Black women rock singers who have been misconstrued and dubbed as R&B singers due to this wholly artificial cleavage between R&B and rock that occurred in the late 1950s and persists to this day. So uh, check her work out. Um, She also did a really excellent book called Right to Rock about the Black Rock Coalition, which was published in the late 1990s. We have another question here, and um, the questioner is wondering what your thoughts are as to why there's a disproportionate amount of Black uh, people in the Jehovah's Witness uh, religion. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? I actually have not had any sustained critical analysis of the Jehovah Witness phenomenon. Now, my experience with Jehovah Witnesses really only extends to empirical observation and folks doing the usual suspect proselytizing, coming to my door ad nauseum. So just for folks, FYI, um, I grew up as a humanist, as an atheist, as a secularist in a, a strongly secularist and free-thinking household. We were an outlier household back in the day. So I was not really steeped and immersed in all of the different variations and sects of, you know, African-American, faith-based, um, you know, prophetic or millennialist religiosity. So I would defer again to someone who has more knowledge on that, perhaps Mandisa. Um, I would say in Lysa Kivu, I was pretty raised, I was raised pretty secular, humanist, um, non-religious. However, we can attribute the same historical influence of religion in the black community to Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, this promise of an afterlife, you know, this, this promise of a community which lends itself heavily to conformity. And if the Jehovah's, I have a, I have a cousin who is former Jehovah's Witness. And of course, the things that they teach in there are extremely, extremely dogmatic. Um, many Jehovah's, many former Jehovah's Witnesses have, um, experienced, uh, severe, uh, emotional and psychological trauma as a result of being involved in that particular sect. And much like any other religion that promises this idea of hope and empowerment, it has um, it has had a similar impact on many within the black community. So um, much of what Sakivu has stated, much of what I and others have have mentioned have have stated numerous times about the influence of religion in the black community also uh is true for uh jehovah's witnesses 
also this promise of this white savior as well, because there was a question um, as it pertains to the pastors being white and the congregation being black. So there is definitely the the historical and psychological aspect there as well that we discuss we have discussed many times. Yeah, and then the other thing is um, the the prevalence of Jehovah Witnesses in the community on a grassroots level in fulfilling their mission, going door to door, um, you know, being on street corners, engaging with folks in a, a wayfaring kind of way, I think is also appealing as far as the urban politics of being in city spaces and in neighborhoods and in, in public transportation. So I think that that's been a powerful motivator and um, attractor for African-Americans as well as Latinx communities. There's a question of, do you have any suggestions for bringing more awareness to black female recording artists, virtual concerts in the park? Is there a radio request that they be featured on Spotify? Uh, what are the different, what are the various ways that um, even the general public can help bring more awareness to these amazing women? So there's actually an event coming up that um, I've co-curated and it's called Shredding While Black and Female. It's going to be at the museum or virtually at the Museum of the African Diaspora on Juneteenth. And I'll drop some information about that in the chat. But in addition to some of the things I've already cited, uh, becoming involved with or at least virtually with um, Afropunk or the Black Rock Coalition. The Black Rock Coalition is a bedrock for advocacy for contemporary African-American unsung artists. So I highly recommend checking them out. Uh, the event on Juneteenth is oriented not just in terms of Black women who are out there in the public sphere performing, but also Black students of rock music and a multiplicity of genres. So we're really trying to bring in with this round table, which is the second of its kind, young black women, Gen Z in particular, who are in high school or in early college, who are interested in continuing the tradition of black rock feminist expressivity, playing different instruments, um, engaging with elementary school students, paying it forward and giving back to the community. Because certainly, a motivator for writing the novel was my being systematically discouraged in my education you know, as an instrumentalist and as a songwriter, as, as a, a budding songwriter, from playing the electric guitar. And so that's something that, like I said, is going to be um, a big element of what we're trying to engage young people with in public schools, high schools, elementary schools, and middle schools. So I would encourage folks, um, if you're interested, uh, check out that roundtable and then tap into the other resources that I cited. Um, I see a question here, and I'm going to um, add to it to an extent. Um, what is your opinion on Black women leaving Christianity for, like, African spirituality of African religions? And do you think that it has an impact on um, on on music culture as well as um, uh our creativity in the United States. You know, I, I have, I think of Sweet Honey and the Rock, which I grew up with, uh, back in the, you know, seventies and, and eighties. Uh, my mother played a lot of, uh, a lot of them. Uh, one of the first, one of the very, um, if you know any, well, 
if you know anything about, uh, you know, somewhat black folk music, Sweet Honey in the Rock is a uh, huge uh, staple. But um, what would be your um, what would be your thoughts on that? So the question is the influence of African spirituality on contemporary music. Um, black women leaving Christianity for oh, leaving like, African spirituality, and do you think that has a, uh, a, a do you think that has an impact on the musical on, on music? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we could see you've already cited "Sweet Honey in the Rock." I mean, you have folks like Erica Badu, um, uh, Jill Scott. I'm not saying that those folks actually have left Christian dogma. But, I mean, they certainly infuse their music with a more global and alternative spirituality. So I think that that could be a generative thing. That's not something that I subscribe to as, as a uh, materialist, a scientific materialist and a naturalist. But I'm not going to begrudge their subscription to those genres and that form of cultural production and expressivity. Sakibu, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Um, Sakibu has provided us with a bunch of different resources. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put them in to the chat and I'll also uh, put in resources where you can connect with uh, Sakibu and see um, her body of, of work as well. Uh, while I do that, Mandisa Sakibu, would you mind kind of sharing with us what the um, upcoming 2021 Women of Color Beyond Belief conference is? So the impetus for the conference was Actually, if we want to walk it back to the bedrock impetus, it was our outrage over not seeing Black women, free thinkers, atheists, and humanists represented equitably in the media in the secular world. So we confronted the Humanist magazine back in 2019 about that erasure. They did a story on us, and we contributed pieces um, talking about our specific um, analysis and pushback of the secular community from the white supremacist perspective, in addition to what Black feminist humanism is aiming for and advocating for. And so that was really the catalyst for the Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference in 2019. And we had an array of, of really amazing frontline um, activists uh, resisting disruptor presenters, um, looking at everything from the school to prison pipeline, uh, the normalization of rape culture and domestic and intimate partner violence in African-American communities, uh, ex-Muslim feminism, and a whole uh, confluence of different issues and, and initiatives. So if Mandisa, if you want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the stuff that's coming up for the 2021 conference. Absolutely. And I am sharing the playlist for the 2019 Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference uh, in the chat. You may watch those videos there. Um, and also, really, there are a lot more women of color in this movement that are activists, that are speakers, that that not only – May, that you may not be aware of, but that you need to know. And there are more coming. And so for 2021, we are featuring more um, upcoming and also uh, currently active women of color uh, in, in the secular movement. 
that are beyond belief and that everyone needs to hear from and support. This year, it will be a hybrid event. We will be streaming it online for those who cannot attend in person. It will take place in Chicago once again from September 24th through the 26th. Uh, you can, uh, we posted the website uh, earlier in the chat. We'll post it again. Uh, so we hope that you do support. Thank you to Recovering From Religion for being one of the 2019 sponsors along with other organizations. Uh, again, uh, we, you will definitely see myself and Sakivu <laughs> at the, at the conference this year. Um, but, and we will be talking more, definitely uh, us and our speakers will be talking more, um, about the issues that impact women of color in particular, and also how the broader secular community can help and support. And this is something that uh, we emphasize greatly is support because we need for folks to listen. We need for folks to understand, even if you ne may not necessarily agree. Um, we're not just making this up. These are things that are happening. They impact not just us, but our entire communities. And uh, we didn't just want to sit and wait for the community to get up off its collective ass and do something about it. We took this into our own hands and, uh, and, and made it happen. So um, we definitely look forward to the conference again uh, this year. And again, for those who may want to uh, stream it online, it, that is available and that option is easily accessible uh, uh, on the website. Uh, we do have student discounts both in person and for streaming. And again, uh, we hope that uh, you will tune in and um, and support. And when is this conference again? September 24th through the 26th uh, this year. So, uh, yeah, partially in Chicago and partially online. So it is a hybrid event. We are <laughs> recommending that people come fully vaccinated or and definitely following the safety and social distancing guidelines, just as a heads up. And uh, the on the flyer it says come one and come uh, come one come all on the website it says come one come all and we absolutely stand by that. Thank you, thank you so much. Now, uh, Sakivu, before I know you have to uh, take off and not able to stick around for the the hangout time, but before um, you do leave us, do you have any um, final thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, I'll just have a final thank you. And uh, again, expression of appreciation and, and gratitude for giving me the platform. And it's really excellent to see so many African descent, particularly African-American women on this call. Shout out to Dr. Kamala Hayward Rodemy, if she's still on, one of my closest and dearest friends from back in the day. And uh, shout out to Pam Knowles. <laughs> <laughs> Really appreciate Mandisa Thomas's leadership as always. Much love and have a great evening, everyone. Man, thank you so Good much. Good night, Sakibu. Good night. Now, are, the, are these folks both out of the closet and uh, like well, uh, well-known voices in the, the, the community? I'm not too sure, but I would like to, if I don't know them, I certainly would like to. Um, again, this is, this is a part of what you know, I said about more people who are, you know, more, especially more black women who are out there, uh, 
And one of the major missions of Black Nonbelievers is to help amplify those voices. Um, if you didn't see, uh, uh, she, Sakiva also linked Candace Gorm's book, The Ebony Exodus Project. I certainly uh, recommend that people pick up that book if they haven't already. Uh, it is it is absolutely uh, it is absolutely important to understand not just the uh, the statistics and the history, but also hear the voices, hear the stories of the the women who experience it, what we're going through, and the, and what we're doing about it. Uh, these are absolutely uh, the, this is absolutely important for not just us, but also again the broader community. And Candace has been on this uh, on RFRX uh, a few times. Uh, one of them uh, being with you as well, uh, Mandisa. Absolutely, yes. Great, fantastic talk. She's also one of the five years humanists yet again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna post this. <laughs> Plastered everywhere. <laughs> Love Absolutely. It. Gail and Mandisa, what's going on in the fall? Uh, well, we are happy to announce that we get to go back for our fall excursion. We did it for the first time in 2019. We had our hopes dash last year like everybody else when the world came to a screeching halt and weren't able to meet in 2020. But we're back on tap for September of 2021. What we are talking about is our fall excursion. It's our version of a religion recovery weekend. And with all of those R's, you would it's noticeable that I stayed away from the word retreat. It's sort of like that, but for some folks that's loaded. That word is loaded from their from our former religious days. If you ever were um, involved in church, if you ever did a youth retreat or a women's retreat or a church retreat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And what we like to say is we've taken all of the good and we've ditched all the bad. It's a weekend setting. It's in the cool mountains of North Carolina in September. It's the weekend prior to the Women of Color Conference, so you're able to attend both. Last year, Mandisa was our special guest, and I'm going to turn it over to her to let you tell you about her experience. We would love for you to join us. There'll be information uh, on the, there's a fall excursion tab at the Recovering From Religion website that'll give you all the detail. And if you can't go and you'd like to sponsor someone else going, you're welcome to do that. It would allow someone else to, to go to the excursion and have that experience. Mandisa, tell, tell us what you did at the 2019 fall excursion. Yes, thank you, Gail. So when I was asked to participate, in the 2019 fall excursion, I thought of something that would be a really, really good um, community building exercise. Um, and it wasn't even an exercise. So, and also being a, a singer. So this, this talk was right up my alley, you know, music history and just talking about music period was just some, is something that is very important to me. And actually uh, it, it's it's actually relevant to a lot of former uh, believers because many of you are former musicians and uh, music is also very important to your lives. So I recommend I led the karaoke session. Now, this seems like, you know, this may seem a little you know, hokey or, or to people, but what it, what it, what it really, really did was it was a Saturday night fun session. It helped people to open up, let, you know, let loose, do the, do the thing that you may not have been able to or allowed to do or felt comfortable doing in your religious communities. And so, uh, 
I led the karaoke session and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, we, I think everyone, almost everyone there just jumped in, had a good time. It wasn't just one person singing. We all sang together. We all rapped together too. There was just so many different <laughs> genres of music that was just, that was, rep, that were represented. And, uh, it really, really was a wonderful experience, and I'm happy to do it again. I want to encourage, uh, I love to encourage each and every one of you, if you are attending, to uh, take part in not just that session, but everything else that will be taking place. But absolutely, and you don't have to be a singer. You don't have to be a professional. It is all about fun and letting your hair down. Now, I know I don't have any hair, but uh, <laughs> it is really about letting letting yourself go and really experiencing something new with new people. Some of us, we're like a family, so we already know each other. And and really, you really, really get to, you have the opportunity to take part in a um, in just a wonderful experience. The one thing I like to do with, um, you know, with the events that I participate in, in and also the ones that I produce is to have uh, an element of fun creativity and just people uh just just building that is a huge part of our community and i know we miss that in person you know that in person aspect and that that is just uh you know that is just amazing and and I, you're going to have just as much fun it's going to be great this year as well i'm happy to be your karaoke leader again this year for the fall excursion so please join us for it Thank you, Mandisa. You know, we talk often, this is recovering from religion after all, and it is insidious the way that religion takes that piece of our life away from us, the music piece. The path is so narrow within religion on what kind of music is appropriate, what kind of music you can enjoy. It's, um, I'm, uh, I, I, it, I, it's one of those things that when you first begin to work through your doubts about religion, the big things, the big chunky theological things are the first things that you begin to disassemble. But then there are things like the music. We had folks that attended the fall excursion in 2019 who got their music back over the weekend because they were music people in the church. And when you leave church and you, and you drop all of that and where else do you find it? So it's an awesome experience. Check out the details at the website. I hope to see everyone there. And if you can't go and you'd like to sponsor someone else, we would appreciate that too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.